0: Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York.
1: And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York.
0: It's episode 203 and somehow July already. In the pod this week, we have Madeline Cuff, Carmela padovich Callahan, and Claire Wilson. Hey all. Hello.
1: Hello. This week, we're talking about how quantum technology could help self-driving cars to navigate and make them more resilient against attacks.
0: We'll also talk about the cryptographic capabilities of rune-based writing, more evidence that having a higher body weight is less associated with early death than previously thought, and a mind-bending story about how time was different in the very early universe.
1: But first, if the planet felt a little hotter to you over the last few days, then you were not alone. Maddie, Earth broke a new record this week. Tell us what's going on.
2: Yeah, so we had some data released this week that confirmed that Monday, July the 3rd, was the hottest day ever recorded on Earth, which is a pretty staggering new milestone. So average global air temperatures for that Monday were 17.01 degrees Celsius. So for our US listeners, that's 62.62 degrees Fahrenheit. And it beats the previous record of 16.92 degrees Celsius, 62.46 degrees Fahrenheit, that was reached jointly in August 2016 and July 2022. But... No sooner had we published that story, it's been a busy week, than we got the news (laughs) that Tuesday the 4th of July had beaten Monday's record. Temperatures on that day climbed to 17.18 degrees C, that's 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit. And then on Wednesday, average temperatures hit that same peak. So it's really been a record-breaking week for global air temperatures.
0: I know we've been really feeling that heat on the East Coast in the US and all over the country. But when you say average global temperature, what does that really mean? Yes,
2: yeah, so of course, we're talking about averages here. So some places might be cooler and some places might be hotter. The specific measurement that's used is global air temperatures recorded two meters above the Earth's surface, and that's the average taken from measurements across land and sea. So from the middle of the ocean to the top of mountains in the middle of cities, and that's a that's a pretty standard benchmark that climatologists use to measure average warming around the world. This particular data set only goes back to 1979. But one of the researchers I spoke to said that we can use other data sets that chart average temperatures right back to when instrumental records began, which was back in the 1850s. So we can say with a lot of confidence that these days this week have been the hottest on Earth's record. That was a lot of numbers. So I
0: just want to recap for us the record from Monday was about 0.1 degrees Celsius or 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the record from 2022. And the record from Tuesday was almost double that difference again on top. So we're talking about an even bigger sort of increase to the record. And these may sound like really small differences, but when we're talking about a global average temperature, a small shift can represent a lot of variation from the norm. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it's probably helpful to put it in a bit more context. So the average the average air temperature for this time of year, if we take the period 1979 to 2000, was a whole degree Celsius cooler than what we're seeing now. And because we're dealing in global averages, such large departures from the norm are really, really unusual. If you check out our New Scientist web story on these records, you'll you'll see the temperature chart with the heat line for 2023 just soaring way above the other years. So that kind of really helps to visualise what we're talking about here.
1: So do we know what's actually behind this hot streak?
2: Yeah, so as you mentioned, you guys in the States have had some pretty extreme heat over the last few weeks. There's also been record-breaking marine heat waves in the Atlantic, particularly around the UK coast, and, and extreme heat elsewhere in the world. So that's that's definitely a factor. It's been a warm a very warm June and July. I guess taking a step back more broadly, there are are kind of two major drivers to this. So the obvious one is climate change, which is gradually pushing up average temperatures around the world. So each year we're seeing kind of incrementally things getting hotter. But then on top of that, this year is pretty special because we've got what's called an El Nino climate pattern. And El Ninos are basically when sea surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean rise above average. And that has a global impact. It drives a pattern of warming around the world, leading to increased temperatures on land and sea. And so that will mean more extreme heat waves and more extreme weather in certain regions. So the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it's a bit of a mouthful, we usually just call it NOAA, (laughs) they confirmed earlier this month that the world is now officially in an El Nino state. And those conditions will accelerate throughout this year and they tend to peak in kind of December, January time. So all this means that we will probably be seeing more record-breaking temperatures over the next few months.
1: Yeah, I don't know whether it's just us being here in New York and the wildfire smoke coming over from Canada, but it, it just feels like this year lots of these climate anomalies seem to be happening. Is it a particularly strange year or is it just that we're feeling it?
2: Yeah I have to say I mean I've been writing about climate change for quite a few years now but 2023 is certainly shaping up to be a weird one as you mentioned we've had record breaking heat waves and unprecedented wildfires in in Canada and across the US there's been heat waves in the Atlantic Ocean we've had record high sea surface temperatures We've had the hottest June on record globally and record low levels of Antarctic sea ice. And and we're only halfway through the year. So Lord only knows what is going to come in the next uh-huh. six months. But if you speak to scientists, they'll they'll tell you that they're not really surprised by what's happening. I spoke to Robert Rhodes, who's a climate scientist at the NGO Buckley Earth based in California. And he said to me, That if you were doubting global warming, then everything being at record highs at the same time really would be alarming. But given that we accept that global warming is happening, this is just what the progression of, of global warming is expected to look like.
0: Next up, we've got a story about how quantum tech could give us better driverless cars. Carmela, the device we are talking about here is a quantum version of LiDAR. But remind us first, what does the sort of boring non-quantum version actually do?
3: Right. So LiDAR stands for light detection and raging. And it's sort of similar to radar or sonar where you bounce some sort of a wave, like a radio wave or a sound wave, off of objects around you to work out how far they are, um, sort of like using echo to find things in a dark room. But LiDAR does the same thing with light. So it emits light and then makes a map of its surrounding based on how light reflects back from whatever is around the device.
0: And I can totally see how that would be useful in a driverless car. It's being used to help, in some, at least navigate these complex, uh, constantly moving landscapes of city roads and highways. Does that always work, though? I mean, I imagine there's a lot of other light being bounced around in traffic, especially when you have like headlights at night or, you know, even if someone's just gotten their car freshly washed and waxed.
3: Yeah, I mean so driverless cars don't just have LiDAR, they'll have some cameras also. But then LiDAR is also a part of how they measure distance to other objects. And, and I think your intuition is exactly right. So if a car is driving behind something very reflective and there's a ton of light that's illuminating the lidar part of the car, it can get overwhelmed and, and confused and sort of fail. There's a there's a couple of papers from a few years back that basically show that you can attack LiDAR with extra light and sort of get autonomous vehicles to go to go where they're not supposed to go.
1: Okay, well that's uh, a little scary. But you reported on an experiment this week that seems to suggest maybe the remedy is going quantum, which like if, I, if I've ever heard of something that sounds like it's not true, I mean, this is maybe it. It sounds like a dodgy car ad or everything like razors are going quantum. Is this just another one of Go those quantum. or can, yeah, can quantum <laughs> technology actually help in this situation?
3: Yeah, I think as a, as a physics reporter, I have a, a particular aversion to everything being quantum. But in this case, actually, it, it does turn out that instead of using sort of regular light, if you use single particles of quantum light or photons, the sort of like chunks of light rather than like the light that you'd usually use from a, from a continuous source, then you can kind of avoid this issue of light or getting overwhelmed. Usually you have to use the same light to sort of touch the object, bounce back and go into a detector. But here, what, what they did in this particular experiment that I reported on, they, they di- divided up that labor between two photons using a process called quantum entanglement.
0: Right. That's the thing where two particles are connected and they can kind of mirror each other's states, even when they're far apart.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. So so if you have two photons are entangled, if something happens to one of them, the other one sort of immediately, quote unquote, knows about it. So the researchers try to take advantage of this in the sense that they sent one photon out of the device to bounce off of things, but that one didn't have to come back into the detector. They were just monitoring what's gonna happen to the pair, which was entangled and could kind of convey the same information. So there was some stray light outside of the device. It could never make it into the detector because the photon that was being measured was just sitting in the device the whole time and didn't interact with that stray light at all. So you get much better protection from from sort of light attacks.
1: So the, you're saying that, potentially, if we attach this quantum LIDAR to a car, then the car wouldn't get confused by random light around it?
3: Yeah, that's exactly it. And and the researchers um, actually tried to imitate an attack on their, on their quantum LIDAR by shining uh, LED light into it and then just like a straight up laser beam into it. And it still stayed mostly accurate. Like the laser confused it a little bit, but it wasn't useless. You could sort of still get a lot of information. However, the difficult thing now that we've like sort of quote unquote solved the, the light problem is that now you've got to take this experiment and turn it into something that you can attach to a car. This is currently sort of a fragile thing. It's a little bit of a a maze of lenses and mirrors and special crystals. You assemble it on an optical table, which is like an actual table. So if you wanted to put this in a car, you'd have to miniaturize it, integrate it on the chip. And uh, there's a whole lot of engineering that has to happen for that part.
1: Yeah, so a few steps yet, but an exciting step forward nonetheless. And personally, I always find it pretty exciting to see a nice practical use for quantum entanglement.
3: There you go. Go
0: quantum. (laughs) Go quantum. Time to take a quick break. We wanted to tell you about our latest subscription discount for the magazine.
1: If you're not yet subscribed to New Scientist, or you're trying to convince your friends to join the party, well, now is the time. You can get a 10-week subscription, meaning 10 issues of the magazine, for just 10 British pounds.
0: Or 10 US dollars.
1: Right. So that offer is available until September the 10th, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Or you can visit our website for more information, newscientist.com podcast. One of the most innovative dairy companies in the world is based in Asia. This company is called Yili, that is Y-I-L-I, and it is setting new standards in developing healthier, more sustainable products for a population with rapidly evolving tastes. Find out more at newscientist.com Yili. This message is sponsored by Yili.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact
1: All right, Christy, you're up next with a story from the annals of human language about how long ago Norwegians used cryptography in their runic writing, way earlier than we initially thought.
0: Right. And as someone who found the magazine's cryptic crossword last week impossible, we can also file this under stories about things Christy can't do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that type of cryptic crossword is a sort of British and very unuseful version of cryptography. (laughs) So anyway, the runes we're talking about form a system of writing that was used for hundreds of years where each rune represents both a sound and a word. So a rune that corresponds to, say, a letter like S can also mean sun.
0: Right. And usually it's possible to translate these runes to modern languages. Usually. But we already knew the Vikings, who were around starting about the year 800, were sometimes encrypting their runes, using a code to muddle the interpretation of their writing. There's the famous rock runestone in Sweden, for example, from the late 800s, and no one's convincingly succeeded in making out what it actually says.
1: But there's now a new case of encryption, right, as much as 300 years earlier than the Vikings.
0: Yeah, and that's the really exciting part. Sebastian Zimmerman at the University of Lorraine in France thinks he's found evidence of encrypted ruins dating back up to the 7th century AD. So he looked at weapons, jewelry, stones, and other artifacts for evidence of cryptography and found several likely examples. For example, a stone called the Hagenvik Stone, which was discovered in 2009 in Norway. Some of the runic inscriptions on it make perfect sense, but one section is apparent gibberish. It translates as an essentially random collection of letters like A-A-A-S-R-P-K-F and then A-A-R-P-A-A none of which is really a word in a known language of the time.
1: Like to my ear, that really sounds like, you know, when you've had a hard day at work and you bang your head on the keyboard and suddenly (laughs) you've got a result that is this sort of text.
0: Right. Or like when my cat gets really interested in what I'm working on for the day. It's very unnatural. And that phrase has two instances of the rune for P, which is a really rare rune normally in these ancient writings. So Zimmerman thinks it could be what's known as a substitution code. So each letter is standing in for a different letter that would actually make sense.
1: So if only we had some sort of decoder key to crack it, I'd love to know what they're saying.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's the tough part. According to another researcher, Jonas Nordby, who's been studying the younger Viking cryptography, it's absolutely likely that encoding runes would have been something going on for at least 100 years before the Vikings themselves, because there were several cipher systems in use by then. And these things don't just appear from nowhere. But actually proving it without finding a key to the code and using it to decipher the A, 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 etc. gibberish would be very difficult.
1: Absolutely fascinating. You can read more about this story on our website. And that's written by Joshua Haugeberg. Claire, you've been looking into whether we might have to rethink how we define being overweight. So is this going to be good news or bad news?
4: It's good news. Don't worry. Um, So going by the results of this study, anyway. So this research looks at the health impact of being somewhat overweight. Now, as a bit of background, it uses the concept of body mass index, or BMI.
0: Yeah. And Claire, can you remind me what BMI is and how we
4: calculate it? Yes. It's a measure of how heavy you are, taking into account your height. So it's all done in metric. So apologies to our American listeners. (laughs) Your BMI is your weight in kilograms divided by the square of your height in
0: meters. So what is a so-called good BMI to have, according to the conventional wisdom?
4: So that's the controversial thing. In most countries, a healthy weight is currently defined as a BMI of between 18.5 and 25. And having a BMI of between 25 and 30 is classed as overweight and above 30 is classed as obese.
1: Yeah, and these classifications, they're supposed to represent health as opposed to some sort of societal standard. So where does this new research come in on that?
4: Right. The the new study looked at how likely people were to die over a certain period, depending on how heavy they were at the start. Now, what they found is that having a BMI that put you in the overweight category carried with it a slightly lower risk of dying than being in the supposedly healthy weight category.
1: Is that right? Isn't it meant to be the other way around?
4: Yeah, I mean, how, how can it be healthier, as we define a lower BMI, to be at a weight that puts you at a higher risk of dying? So one interpretation of these results is that we've got the definition of overweight wrong. Maybe we should only start asking people to lose weight if they reach a higher BMI of 30. And if that's right, that would be big news.
0: So do you think that this means that doctors will start changing their advice for people with larger body sizes then? Like maybe they'll stop focusing on someone's weight or BMI as an important measure of health?
4: Well, it might be a bit soon to leap to that conclusion just from this study. Even the researcher, when I spoke to them, wanted to stress the need for caution. Uh, Sometimes large population studies like this can generate some Um, spurious results. For instance, it was based on people's self-reported height and weight, and that has potential for errors to creep in. However, this is not the only study to have questioned where we should put the threshold for being overweight. I think this will be a topic that gets growing attention in future, and it's actually pretty controversial among doctors.
1: Controversial in what way?
4: Okay. Well, a study that first brought this to this question to wide attention. It actually came in 2005 from a researcher named Catherine Flegel. It was pretty similar in design to this latest one, but as I say, it used data that is now quite old and perhaps less representative of the modern US population. Uh, But anyway, her paper unleashed a wave of personal attacks, perhaps because public health doctors thought it was dangerous to spread the idea that it's okay to be overweight. For instance, claims were made that her employer, the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, had withdrawn the paper and demoted her, neither of which were true. She actually wrote a fascinating personal account of this in a journal paper that's free to read, and we can put a link to that in the show notes. Obviously, it only tells her side of the story, but I found it a a riveting tale.
1: So, Christy, finally today we've got a bit of a mind-melting story about how time, time itself, was different in the early universe than how it is today.
0: Well, you can't just stop there. You need to go on.
1: (laughs) Well, we have now found that time ran five times slower one billion years after the Big Bang than it does now.
0: I know you promised that you were going to melt my mind, but I (laughs) I feel like I'm already there. What does it even mean that time ran five times slower.
1: Yeah, this is one of those stories. It takes a little bit of unpacking. So since the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding. And one of the big ideas from general relativity is that space-time is one thing. Mm -hmm. And as space expands, time is affected too. So in the most distant parts of the universe, which are the bits where we are looking furthest into the past because of the time it takes light to reach us, in those distant parts, we should see that time is running much slower than it does today. And that's a process called time dilation that we know quite a bit about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's been predicted that shortly after the Big Bang, that time ran much slower than it does today. But up until now, we just didn't have the data to really prove it for so early on in Mm -hmm. the universe's history.
0: But now they've found the evidence to prove it. I feel like this is the, the headline so often. Einstein was right. Now we have evidence over and over again.
1: Yeah, exactly. So now Geraint Lewis at the University of Sydney and Brendan Brewer at the University of Auckland, they've managed to perform an analysis that proves that time was in fact running slower this early on in the universe. And to perform the analysis, the pair needed a form of cosmological clock. And for that, they turned to quasars. So these consist of a supermassive black hole with an energetic gaseous disk around them that emits a lot of light that we can see from a long way away. And then by analyzing data from around 190 quasars, they found that there were quasars with similar properties that exhibit a sort of similar pattern of behavior over a specific period of time. And so that repeating patterns works a little bit like at the ticks of a cosmological clock.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So the researchers then found that the most distant and therefore oldest quasars ticked five times slower than much closer ones. And one of the quasars that they looked at goes back to just one billion years after the Big Bang, which makes this our earliest ever observation of this strange cosmic time warp.
0: You know, that's so cool. I mean, I think I'm still wrapping my head around it, but it's really cool. And I, I feel like... Just as we're kind of proving Einstein right over and over again, we're also learning so much from these like distortions and patterns in these massive bright objects. You know, last week it was pulsars telling us about very large gravitational waves. This week it's quasars and the flow of time itself. It feels very science fiction. So if you were there in the early universe, experiencing time moving five times slower than normal. What would it feel like? Would it everything be in slow-mo or more like that feeling when you're kind of watching a pot and just waiting for water to boil?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, if you were there, it would feel exactly the same as if you were here. A minute still feels exactly the same as a minute. But what is different is from our relative position here, looking back billions of years, we can see that this early time was moving five times slower.
0: Okay, so it was slower, but we wouldn't have known it. My mind is definitely melted.
1: The full story for that by Chen Lai is on our website, and we'll link to that in the show notes.
0: And that's all for this week. Before we go, if your mind wasn't already melted, we have a fun update from the world of mathematics. Scientists trying to pin down a series of numbers called Dedekind numbers have, with the help of advanced computing systems, found the ninth in the series, 30 whole years after the eighth was discovered in 1991.
1: Yeah. So we won't read you the full number, although it is on our website if you want to look at it, <laughs> um, as it's 42 digits long. One of the most impressive parts about this that I really love is that two teams were able to calculate the number and then release their identical results mere days apart. And Dedekind numbers, they represent the number of possible arrangements in logical systems, and they get bigger at this incredible rate, what's called double exponential speed. And so this ninth number is thought to be perhaps the last of the Dedekind numbers that humans will ever be able to find because of just how much complexity would be involved in calculating the tenth.
0: Challenge accepted. <laughs> we'll link to that full story in the show notes.
1: Thanks for listening. Do subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And thanks for your support. Bye for now.
0: Bye. 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 Bye.
2: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.